Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Our April issue is up online in complete, in uh, completely, fully accessible to our subscribers at Commentary Magazine. .com. So go subscribe so you can read the whole issue, including such remarkable entries as uh, what they, the good news they won't tell you about race in America by Wilfred Riley, uh, Joseph Epstein on on the phenomenon of the polymath, Michael Medved on how presidents do when they seek office after the presidency, um, a really remarkable piece about the day that uh, the chief rabbi of Ireland saved kosher slaughter in Europe in 1934. Uh, sort of a, a, a remarkable story of, a, of an argument won in the, uh, in the Irish Senate. Um, a great piece by Elliot Kaufman on, on Helen Andrews' book, Boomers. Um, we have uh, Jim Meggs on net neutrality, our own Christine Rosen on Taylor Lawrence and the social media reporting uh, horrors that she perpetrates, uh, and uh, many, many other wonderful pieces. So that's uh, the April issue at commentarymagazine.com, where we also have merch for you, merch, shirts, shirts, bags. Uh, mugs are coming, uh, and uh, uh, we have the new women's tea uh, that says "Keep the candle burning on it." And of course, we have the crushing morosity T-shirt and sweatshirt. Uh, so, still there for your shopping pleasure at merch.commentarymagazine.com. Okay, um, so uh, I was, uh, as I really do, I had on one of the morning shows. Uh, totally by happenstance, and it was Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas talking about the border crisis. We now know that uh, uh, migrant, unaccompanied minor children, uh, migrant children are filling up the facilities uh, down by the border, uh, totally spurred on by the change in administration and apparently the um, the marketing of, of the line in Central America that uh, now, you know, Trump's gone, so everybody should 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 start <clears throat> pouring across the border because there'll be, you know, there's a there's a new uh, more liberal regime in town. And Mayorka said just the most astonishing thing. He he sent the message. He wanted to tell everybody the following: Do not come now. Give us the time to rebuild the system that was entirely dismantled in the prior administration. A nice, wonderful system to, you know, help you with your, all of your illegal crossing of the border needs. Uh, now is not the time, quote unquote, says my Orcus, obviously indicating that later will be the time. Later will be a better time for you to come illegally across uh, the, the border. Um, now, I, as I've said many times, am a dove on immigration policy. I think immigration is... Uh, not only a net positive, but an extraordinary net positive for the country and, uh, and all of that. But uh, the notion that what, uh, that the policy prescription 
of the Biden administration is uh, just give us time to make it easier and more pleasant for you to um, violate uh, American law and to come here and to, you know, uh, disappear within, you know, within the 50 states is staggering. It's a staggering thing to say. Uh, Right? Is there any defense of this possible? No, <laughs> there really isn't. I don't remember. I can't. I can't even think of a of a public official ever saying anything other than to parents of children who they would foist on coyotes or to bring themselves across the border at at great risk to their own uh, safety to not come. They said that very explicitly. Democratic and Republican administrations alike don't come. I think that was Barack Obama's uh, administration used that used that phrase during the 2014 crisis. Um, and and you're starting to see even sympathetic Biden people in the press say that this is now verging on a humanitarian crisis. Won't use those words yet, but getting there. And maybe it has a little something to do with the incentive structure that we put in place here. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Well, look, uh, the the um, the performative hysteria that greeted <laughs> the migrant crisis of 2017 and 2018, the kids in cages, the the, the demonstrations about it, Jacob Soboroff, um, you know, basically uh, making sort of emotive displays on cable television, all of that, just, you know, extraordinary amounts of coverage of this. Uh, Footage and photographs showing our horrible system, comparing it to concentration camps and the Nazis that turned out to have been taken in 2014 and 2015 during the Obama administration where things looked exactly the same and in which these cages, so, so to speak, were were first uh, deployed because you don't want to put people in uh, walled facilities in 100-degree heat somewhere uh, where there is no air conditioning or not you know sufficient like electrical power to power sufficient air conditioning and stuff like that. Um, now, it's interesting because there was this whole line, uh, Adam Serwer at The Atlantic used it, saying the cruelty is the point. The point about the Trump administration is that Trump is cruel, and the cruelty is the point. And you can see that in the way Jeff Sessions and others talk about the migrant crisis. Like, they say, don't come here, you will go. You will be thrown in jail. Don't come here, we will throw you back. Don't do this. You know, uh, we are going to make life as hard for you as possible which was ugly and it was unpleasant and it was an unpleasant way to do it. And it was part and parcel of a general idea of, 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 of Trump's that, you know, intimidation uh, is a, is a good form of um, political suasion, particularly when you're dealing with people outside the United States. Uh, However, um, if in fact it played a role in slowing down or, you know, mitigating this, uh, constant crisis about kids trying to cross the border and all of that, then the cruelty might have been the point, but the unintended consequence or even the intended consequence of the cruelty was not having, you know, tens of thousands of kids in, in uh, you know, in custody in the United States uh, who have no legal or even moral right to be here. 
there's there's you can I think it's de- deserved to criticize the Trump administration for using child separations as a deterrent in the words of then DHS secretary uh, Kelly. Um, because what they were doing was comporting with the law under the Flores settlement, which means which compels the government to detain parents and then either put their children in a shelter separate ahead of pro- um, processing or release the family entirely to the interior of the country, catch and release. Um, so what they were doing was comporting with the law, just rebranding it as some form of deterrence, which A, was cruel and B, didn't work. It didn't deter anybody. So you can criticize the administration for a failed messaging strategy. And I think that's perfectly deserved. What they were met with, however, was this was when we got the campaign from people like Maxine Waters and uh, commentators in the in the liberal commentariat to never let a Trump administration official have a moment of peace outside of their own homes and sometimes even inside their own homes. It was that crisis that precipitated this changing of the terms of engagement um, which was not due to, was not, uh, you know, proportionate to the scale of the offense necessarily. Um, but the Trump administration did try to leverage cruelty to a certain extent. It was just dumb because that was all they didn't, they didn't change a single rule or regulation. They were simply changing the messaging to be a little more jerky about it. Well, and the irony now is that the Biden administration with, with Aiden and abetted by the press has up up till this week done the exact opposite, right? They like, they basically are, are changing the message radically, but the, as the problem grows, I mean, some of these facilities are at like 700% capacity. There are lawyers who aren't able to even observe what the conditions are. They're just reporting what people tell them. There's not even enough transparency in terms of what these facilities, how they're treating the people that they detain. But the main problem seems to be, and, and I noticed that Elon Omar in particular keeps talking about a refugee crisis, a refugee crisis. They're trying to actually change the way we discuss our border issues because they don't want to argue for a secure border because they don't believe that a secure border should exist because that itself is a cruelty and, and some sort of human rights violation. That's the point at which I think a lot of Republicans are are correctly focusing on the crisis, but not also making the argument as John, I think you're correct to make, like, we want immigration. Immigration is good for this country, but we also need a secure border. And these are the reasons why. And here's how we go about it. So the, I, I would fault the the Republicans right now as well for just kind of feasting on the disaster that, that Biden's messaging has created, but not offering all that many solutions either. There's there's something else I think interesting about the, the messaging here, aside from the fact that it's a, a crazy uh, thing to say in and of itself. It is yet another example of the administration just um completely unable and 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 totally afraid to um actually come down and say s- something of some sort of uh definite substance you know um they they they're trying to find all these halfway measures um between uh, uh some sort of um lib- old democratic norm and uh and the left and uh, in places where where no half measure really exists, you know, so saying "Don't come now, come later," um, is 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 another one of those ex- examples where you just you just have this administration just sort of saying things that don't make sense in the real world. Aside from the the, the implications of the policy being crazy, that's such a great decoder ring for understanding just about everything this administration has done so far. That it's probably applicable to just about everything: public health, national right. security, environmental policy. 
that, yeah, just trying to, to thread a needle that is just impossible to thread. Well, I mean, look, the central problem here is um, that their disingenuousness is a mark of the way that people talk about uh, immigration and have been talking about it now for 25 years, which is that there is a world of people on the right who say immigration, illegal immigration is dangerous. It, it uh, you know, it's a security risk and it... Um, it depresses uh, incomes in the United States and it's a form of sort of social support or kind of welfare support for, uh, for companies to get low wage wage workers uh, who will, will do these uh, jobs that they would have to pay Americans more to do uh, and all of that. Um, But uh, what they actually think is that immigration is a cultural crisis for the country and that we are letting too many people in who are, from a different culture that is not our own and that they are infecting our culture and diseasing it in some fashion or other, and that this is the the true danger of it. And they're using economic or social science research somewhat disingenuously to try to like broaden their case beyond this that is a little too divisive for people. And then you have the left, uh, which um, acts as though any effort to uh, retard or restrict or control or have some policy on immigration is prima facie cruel and awful. Um, And uh, that is itself uh, disingenuous because what then happens is things like this border crisis and kids coming over who at the very least need to be processed Something needs to be done with them if they're like 11 years old and they're sitting in a they're sitting at the border. Wh- where are they going to go? Who's going to take care of them? They don't speak English. They don't have a mean. They they don't have the wherewithal to get food for themselves or anything like that. And that and that the unintended consequences of their supposed humanitarian uh, uh, goals uh, are are absolutely you know horrific. And and this is why on the one hand. We are in desperate need of comprehensive immigration reform. And on the other, we will never get it because people are not being honest about what it is culturally that they, that they are, that they are up to, I think. And that is uh, that is something that's not, you know, that's not going to go away. Having said all that, here's where I disagree with you guys. I think Republicans have every right to wallow in the pleasure of this hypocrisy being exposed as quickly and completely as it was now. This whole idea that they had another way to do this. There was another way, a better way to handle this. They had four years of anti-Trump, anti-immigration talking points and all that to come up with policy prescriptions and ideas that they could implement on day one to help change the way that this was done. And of course, they didn't do it because they don't have any ideas. Nobody knows how to deal with problems like this. There are no solutions to them. I mean, there are all sorts of inventive ideas like macroeconomic ideas, like improve the economies of Central America so that people don't feel the need to leave. Help help them get rule of law so that these people are not threatened by drug cartels because they have a weak central government that can't you know, control itself or whatever. But those are, you know, those are solutions for a generation, not not a you know not an immediate crisis period and um and so they reveled in it and they drove people crazy and they talked stuff up and they got suburban moms to hate republicans and all of that and now let them let them 
let them deal with the consequences themselves. They wanted power. They wanted it. They wanted the presidency. They wanted the Homeland Security Department and Border Patrol and ICE and everything like that. Let's now see them deal with the problem. Well, so far, what we've seen is them not dealing with the problem, right? Exactly. I mean, we haven't seen them, not not just the administration saying, come a little later, like put off your vacation plans, but also the members of the press and the people who were hounding um, you know, Trump administration officials in restaurants, they're just ignoring it. Well, I don't know. They're Maybe not they get away with that. They're not ignoring. I mean, it was the lead story on all three morning news newscasts today, which means it's not being ignored. I mean, it 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 really isn't. That doesn't mean that it's being you know handled in the same kind of um, partisan you know ideological way that it was being handled in 2017 and 2018. But the but the but I mean, but they're uncritically allowed. But the, they're uncritically allowing the Biden administration's message to be as follows. We knew how to do things. Trump screwed it up. And now we have this crisis that's not of our own making. And, and the hosts all smile and nod. But I think actually to push back a little bit on your point, John, I think, yes, there are definitely these larger macroeconomic things we can do. But there are actual practical policies that could be implemented tomorrow with the stroke of that presidential pen that Biden likes to, you know, scrawl on everything that has to do with race and gender, but doesn't seem to want to touch when it comes to immigration. You know, they could set up and and Congress has a role here too, obviously, the primary role. You could set up better processing facilities. You could have more judges at the border hearing hearing cases. You could have, you know, as Trump did, although he did it badly, the very strong message, do not do not come to this country with your children if you expect to be let in. You will be turned around. You could reopen negotiations with Mexico about keeping more people on that side of the border. I mean, there are a million little things that could be done that Biden is not able to do because of his left flank. And I think that's the part where they don't want to say out loud what everybody can see. And his progressive flank is getting louder and louder about pushing him on this. And he's going to have to answer to them and not just to the American people more broadly, who generally are not happy with how he's handling immigration so far if the polls are to be believed. So, guys, let me just ask you this question. What good is freedom without virtue? Do you want to answer that question? Join economists, religious leaders, writers, newsmakers, and thinkers every Wednesday for conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics on Act in Line, the flagship podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish and that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. So to subscribe to ActonLine, visit acton.org slash commentary, or search ActonLine on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Uh, one other, uh, weird, uh, dark, dark victory lap that is being taken by, uh, by the Trump people involves a correction that was appended to a Washington Post story yesterday, essentially retracting, uh, an account of a conversation between Trump and a lower level official in Georgia, the one where he, what is it that he is alleged to have said specifically that got retracted. I'm now, I, I just lost the Sign link. the fraud. 
Find oh, yeah. Fraud and find, you'll be a national hero. Yeah, find the fraud and you'll be a national hero. So the Washington Post reported this story uh, on the basis of a source. Uh, and uh, the story has been retracted. A tape has come out in which the conversation was taped. And Trump said neither thing. Um, Beckett Adams over at the uh, Washington Examiner then did a very amusing uh, tweet stream in which he uh, showed how organization after organization following the publication of this story uh, confirmed it with their own independent reporting, meaning either that they didn't confirm it with their own independent reporting and they were just lying and saying they were confirming it, or everybody spoke to the same one person who was the source for the story for the story that uh, got it wrong, who himself or herself may have been playing a game of telephone, like the Steele um, dossier, right? Like the Steele dossier, where, right? Where the yes, the confirmation of was it uh, Page or Papadopoulos's? Yeah, Page proved that Page was Page's source or something. Right. However, uh, and this is a case of extreme malfeasance and we should talk about that more however uh the the uh victory lap people uh including including donald trump himself uh go too far because the central story involving trump and georgia is unassailable and unambiguous because that we literally could hear the tape of and that was his conversation with brad raffensperger the secretary of state which he said you know, he just wants 11,842 votes or whatever it was to get him one vote over. And that browbeating that we heard, the sort of constant, constant, constant browbeating, uh, that really did um, suggest a level of, uh, you know, a, a presidential effort to intimidate a, a lower level official into doing his will, despite the fact that he had already determined that there was no such thing to be done. That story remains un. That story remains unassailable because, as I say, we all heard the tape. So, uh, yeah, and that this is why it's so frustrating, and why the press really should stop making just covering for itself and making excuses and apologies. Is that all the usual suspects now are saying complete exoneration, total and complete exoneration? None of this ever happened, and that's obviously a lie. Because, but the press just doesn't police itself anymore. And if they did, you wouldn't have to have people on the right making these, creating these elaborate fictions for themselves because you'd have an accountability, an apparatus that imposes accountability on these people. You could cite and source. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's not just that. It's also, I think it's not just covering. It's also the, the simple fact of the matter that where Trump was concerned, um, and this is a long-term issue, uh, standards flew out the window. I mean, that that's the central point, is that uh, uh, it was deemed that Trump was sort of prima facie guilty of almost everything that he was charged with, and therefore certain kinds of uh, skepticism or whatever you might call it about stories that sounded too good to be true probably, you know, the kind of skepticism that might in other circumstances, and certainly in the case of friendly uh, 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 people for whom reporters are ideologically friendly or toward whom they're ideologically friendly, 
would greet these things with a certain degree of skepticism was not greeted with skepticism. Well, that's that's the all. that's the scarier part, I think, long term for a lot of us looking at this particular case. It's not just that they obviously didn't have a good source and that no one's going to be punished for having spread this lie. Um, I mean, in the old days, whoever wrote that would either have to reveal their source or they'd get fired. Like this is not the situation that you want to you know be in as a as an editor. Um, it's the fact that because from the very beginning, Trump was we were told Trump was a unique threat to democracy. And we, some of us pushed back on that from the beginning. We said, you know, we don't like him or, you know, we, we don't like X, Y, or Z that he does. But to argue that he's a unique threat to democracy gave the media a lot of uh, running room to transform how they actually do their jobs. And now we've seen that spread, not just in the Trump years to Trump, but about issues about race, issues about class, issues about gender. And and all of this has become a way for them to justify what they've always had, which is plenty of bias. Um, no one's pretending they didn't, but they but it's removed any sort of uh, dampening effect that editorial oversight and standards would have had on that because of the supposed unique threat to democracy. And this is, this is already having detrimental effects, but it's going to have really serious long-term effects. I mean, look, the, the coverage of Russiagate was, you know, a, a scandal because um, there were f- 200 different plot lines that we were told it was like lost, 200 different plot lines and nothing ever resolved itself because it was mostly <laughs> not true. I mean, it was and, all and a we, dream. <laughs> yeah. And we sort of know it was not true. I mean, and Natasha Bertrand at, uh, at, at The Atlantic and uh, Jason Leopold at BuzzFeed, those uh, stories about, um, I mean, I can't even remember what which specific story they reported on Breathlessly that everybody then took as gospel that turned out not, you know, that turned out not to be true. This, of course, started in 2016 with the stuff about uh, Michael Cohen being in Prague uh, and all of that, which, you know, Michael Cohen now, I think, would probably be perfectly happy to say, yes, I went to Prague to do X, Y, and Z for Donald Trump because he's trying to make the case that he's the person who, you know, knows more about Trump than anything. And clearly that story was not true or he would own up to it or, you know, he would reveal that it was true and something that made him a lot of money. Um and again, I can't like I should go back and flip through our you know remarkable pieces by Eli Lake on these matters so I can cite chapter and verse. But that was an entire field. People won Pulitzers for their coverage, and they 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 you know uh, allegation stories, proofs of meetings, and things like that that did not happen. And that in fact the you know the main scandal that came out of that came out of this, aside from it of course being a scandal, moral scandal that Trump was so bizarrely friendly to Russia, which didn't deserve it, was the misuse of the FISA courts, the hounding of American citizens um, by uh, intelligence agencies that should not have had uh, the ability to do what they did, the misuse of the unmasking system, and all of that that showed a certain type of emotional governance out of control that the press simply, you know, just took, you know, and swallowed and nobody and there has been no reckoning. I mean, that's part of the issue here is that uh, uh, is that the uh, there will never be a reckoning because it would all it would do would be to strengthen Trump's hand somehow to prove that he would that they had been mistreated and use that as a springboard to twenty twenty four. And they're not going to give that to him, so there will be no reckoning. And it's up to us and people like us to be honest. But as 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 Noah says, part of the problem here is that you then play into the false narrative of Trump exculpation. 
And there is no way to exculpate Trump on Georgia and the way he handled Brad Raffensperger. And politically, that's a simple fact of, you know, his own misuse of his office or whatever. And then uh, politically to have created this, the conditions in Florida, in Georgia that led to the Senate being in democratic hands. There's this weird dynamic. You know what happened? You know what happened? Because the Senate's in democratic hands. We just spent $2 trillion on, 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 on the liberal, on the liberal wish list because Trump couldn't, couldn't bring himself to acknowledge that he had lost an election that he lost. There's, I blame social media for this almost exclusively because what happens is they get something wrong, they issue a correction, and the correction back in the day would have been sufficient. But then what happens is you get this professional enterprise on the right of media critics who who insist that the correction is an indictment of the entire enterprise. And then every journalist gets their hockles up and they go up into defense mode and they say, well, this aspect of the story was right. And that aspect of the story was right. And this reporter is a noble, noble soul of you know, supremely uh, unassailable vintage. And you, how dare you even go after them whatsoever? And then the whole enterprise sort of rallies around itself and then it essentially presents a defense of the erroneous reporting. It oh, yeah. happens all the time, well, yeah, but, and it is so destructive to its own credibility. Well, they always said that the correction itself is evidence of the um, uh, um, of the sort of integrity of the of the institution or of the individual. They did the right thing. They they issued the correction. They you know, yeah, yeah. It's the you know, it's the uh, it's the definition of chutzpah, right? You uh, you know, you murder your parents, and then you throw yourself on the mercy of the court for being an orphan. You know, I'm really sorry. I, I I got a major fact wrong that uh, drove the news and 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 had a, a, a significant impact on the way people think about something, um, and 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 I was wrong, and uh, you know, a oh, poor reporter. Okay, but it there's must something have been so hard for you to admit that you were wrong, and I thank you so much. But there's something else going on here in journalism that's uh, that that's happening parallel to this. But you know, the, the the two paths will soon meet, and they have in a few stories here and there. And that's the moral clarity, my truth brigade, versus journalism. Journalism isn't about your moral clarity or your truth. There's truth, there, there's facts, and there's not fact. There's and fiction. There's you know, there's truth, and there are lies. And there was the there was a whole remember all the consternation about whether or not you could print that that Trump was a liar that he told a lie and then we have this entire new facade of so-called fact checkers who are who are obviously partisan in how strict their scrutiny is of statements of public officials so that but i do think that the public is incredibly susceptible and look we all are because moral clarity and my truth is a way of constructing a narrative and telling a story about facts that can be extremely uh, pleasurable for people to listen to if they themselves are part of the victim class being described. And that I think is all that sort of weirdly sentimental version of, of journalism is, is unfortunately taking hold in newsrooms when it used to only exist on the op-ed page. And that's the whole problem with burning the source, which is what people are demanding. It's because if you right, were to yeah. burn the source and declare them to be a liar, how could you possibly know where, where they got this information? What was in their heart when they told you? Were they just accidentally misinformed, genuinely misinformed and relating their misinformation forthrightly and, and in good faith? Or were they trying to manipulate you and deceive you? You don't know that. You can't know that. And to make that affirmative declaration in the press would be malpractice, which is why they should never have called Donald Trump a liar in the first place, because they couldn't know what was in his heart. Or found other sources that could confirm what they had 
reported from that source. Yeah, that's- I mean, I honestly never entirely understood the the um, emotional hunger to have it stated flatly in you know news stories that Trump was a liar. What? what I, I, honestly, help me out here. What difference does it make whether or not the story says that Trump lied? as opposed to simply revealing that the things that he said were not true. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. well, it's handholding. It's, it's the, you're being gaslit. Let I, us, in, let us, see, let us in comfort with you to explain to you how terrible this is because he's lying to you. It's like a therapist role, not a journalist role. I think there's that, but it's also the, the, um, the, there's a kind of almost, uh, lubricious pleasure in moving the goalpost toward your understanding of the world in a way that, you know, here's what has to happen. You need to change the basic compact between reader and editor or something like that, or the compact between the institution and the reader uh, in a way that it hasn't been really changed for many decades uh, in order to satisfy my anger. And if you do that, then I'm really going to like you. And you're really going to, you you know, if you do that, uh, then you're the New York Times. You're going to go from 3 million digital subscribers to 6 million digital subscribers because uh, you're really telling us what we want to hear and making us feel so good about our own outrage. Uh, and so I think there is a knowledge that just like Trump wants to bend the Republican Party to his interests, the liberal readers uh, and liberal activists and liberal everything in the United States wanted to bend journalism toward their own view uh, in order to be have the emotional satisfaction of having the reaction to Trump be that the the Overton window was moved in their direction. You know, you know where else you see this um, in CNN Chirons um, that now. You get the feeling that you're no, you're watching a, a different thing called the news than than what used to be called the news. You know, the Chirons now read like sort of angry, outraged tweets. Um, they're they're fully editorialized. Yeah, um, I will say I'll say this also about those that um, a, a lot of them, the ones that people have been capturing, involve the way CNN talks about Fox, and in particular the way CNN talks about Tucker Carlson. And there is a growing sense that Tucker Carlson might be the kind of person who could run in 2024 from his star media platform. Uh, uh, Tucker, uh, whom I worked with uh, 25 years ago, or a little longer than that, at the Weekly Standard, helped hire him for the Weekly Standard, is an extraordinarily intelligent, able, sophisticated, and um, skilled person in many, many ways. Uh, And... um, so the, the this now treatment of Tucker for the latest thing being uh, questions about the uh, uh, the the war readiness or battle readiness of pregnant uh, military officers or pregnant military personnel uh, that has now caused the you know the world to come down around his head. I'm watching this on CNN and I'm thinking to myself, are they trying to get Tucker elected president? It's like their worst dream, right? It's the, the worst thing they could ever imagine, given how they consider him the voice of white supremacy and monstrous and all of this. And yet, doesn't this seem, it's now three years before the election, three and a half years before, the, doesn't this seem like some weird e- echo of, of, of the way they elevated Trump in 2015? 
uh, I mean, they're doing it. Like Tucker's there on Fox. He's whatever he is. They are taking him. They're taking, making, they're amplifying his thoughts and his uh, positions through a megaphone. They are making him the object of liberal ire and hatred exactly in the way that he could use or someone like him could use as a, you know, as a kind of jujitsu whip to uh, rally the Republican base behind them. So, I, I mean, I have this weird CNN Chiron feeling that we're going to look back in 2020. We might look back in 2025 and say, just like Jeff Zucker made Donald Trump president, Jeff Zucker on the way out of CNN, you know, took some steps to making Tucker Carlson president. Well, well, viewership has been down since since Trump's gone. So, you know, any anything to cook up another another Trump and, and you know, hold hold them hold them in, in their targets, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah, I mean, it, it also it also has kind of a whiff less of like the elevating the reality star into the presidency as it does like remember the old ACDC current uh, thing between Edison and his rivals and it, it all ended with poor Topsy the elephant being electrocuted publicly like there's a sense in which this is becoming a, it's it's a media circus as much as it is a political one and it would all depend on whether whatever you know whatever Tucker's private ambitions might be and whatever they are what if you'd make them public but I I mean there's a there's a much more desperation to it. It on the CNN side, I think, than there was when they were elevating Trump. At least that's the sense I get. I, I don't watch a lot of cable news, but I, it does seem desperate. It's so boring. It is boring. It's so shockingly <laughs> boring to obsess over what one cable news host said so that that cable news host will obsess over what you said and you can start a little media fight. Like it's FM talk radio. Right. It's just, it's not the mission. Unless the mission is to entertain and to get your name out there, but that's not what it was supposed to be. Well, it's the mission. The mission of news channels is to make money. Uh, and CNN made a lot of money, so they all do make a lot of money. A lot of the money is made on on fees paid to the co- the companies by cable companies for you know the rights to run the run the channels. Um, but I'm just saying this is an interesting thing because uh, CNN reaped the whirlwind from the left uh, and liberals in, you know, over the last couple of years for its, you know, for the role that it played in, you know, running Trump, running Trump's rallies and offering, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of free publicity. Uh, uh, I don't know that they, you know, I, I'm just saying, I, I want to see what's said about them if Tucker, you know, comes out of the gate and uh, what do they do then? We just we just read somewhere about a, a newspaper in Ohio that has decided that it will not cover uh, uh, Josh Mandel's statements about how the election was stolen. So their their way of dealing with the fact that there is a Republican candidate for office who says things that they don't like uh, is to deny him coverage. Uh, so you know. We're, we're going to see all kinds of, and this is, of course, then considered perfectly acceptable, right? And they want praise for it. They, they're they doing this to, to, you know, and so the, we're now in the uh, suppress the news if you can, but if you can't, then, you know, like stimulate, uh, you know, liberal anger against a conservative target that could have this very interesting 
unanticipated consequence. But then there's a second step that comes after that, right? I, where they they declare they won't cover certain candidates or cur- certain you know uh, arguments. So then those arguments and candidates start finding other platforms to do that. But then those platforms have to be suppressed because they're saying things that we wouldn't report on in our outlets. I mean, there's a weird. It's it's not a healthy uh, thing for democracy that this is because the debate never happens. What happens are these weird positioning and this bunker mentality on both sides. Right. Well, look, um, uh, it is it has come time for the daily uh, uh, for my 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 daily uh, recommendation to you of the telling by Mark Gerson, uh, how Judaism's Judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life. This uh, book-length study of the Passover Haggadah, the guide to the Passover seders that uh, Jews celebrate every year. It's coming in about two and a half weeks. Um, and what what Mark does in this remarkable book is uh, go through every the themes, uh, resonances, uh, present day uh, reflections, and uh, ancient echoes. Uh, that the Haggadah uh, represents in terms of memory, the retelling of the essential, some would say foundational act of Western civilization, which was the exodus from Egypt and the, and the coming to independence of the, of the Hebrew people. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's uh, just a very rich book. And, you know, uh, I'll give you an example, uh, Senator Joe Lieberman, says Mark Gerson brilliantly illuminates some of the big questions from the Haggadah whose answers can define what constitutes a meaningful life. So that is for not just for Jews or people who go to Seders, but for everyone. So that's the telling by Mark Gerson. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can download the audiobook. You can do whatever you want to do to, to have yourself uh, inspired and, uh, and uh, illuminated uh, by the telling. Um, okay. Where are we? Uh, uh, Noah, um, Dr. Fauci, uh, made you angry. Am I correct? He did make me angry. And, um, I, I will jump into that in a second, but I promised Twitter last night that I would bring this to the show just to annoy you, John. Okay. Um, this came across my transom late last night in Politico's transition book. And I just want to read this sentence to you. Two and a half months in, President Biden has surprised some of his former colleagues and allies with a largely gaff-free White House debut after a lifetime of verbal stumbles. He's been so gaff-free, guys. He hasn't misspoken once. He hasn't said one thing out of turn. And I know that's his habit, right? But he's over, he's transcended this habit. And Abe, I know you in particular have uh, been very mistaken in your impressions of what Joe Biden says, because if you've ever seen a gaffe, you're just, you're wrong. Well, I will say this. <laughs> he may not have gaffed in that tr- traditional sense of um, uh, accidentally saying something uh, true, because as we said before there's nothing candid in anything that comes out of the administration well yeah and like it, i just have this image of it's more like ron Klain has performed the jedi mind trick on him and then they don't let him they don't release him into the wild very often anyway so when is this opportunity to have a gaffe it's like right. you will not say a thing we will cut the feed from the white house if you begin talking extemporaneously i mean of course he hasn't had a gaffe he hasn't had an opportunity i mean not only just to dive into this report not only has he had no gaffes but even if he had gaffes, 
quote, gaffes don't really matter, even though the media covers them as if they do. So even if this thing that never happened had happened, it wouldn't matter if it happened, even though it never happened. Okay, so here's, here's I, I don't know why you thought this would annoy me. I think what we see here... Because it annoyed me. Okay, well, there you go. But I, I will say this. I think that what's going on in Washington in relation to Biden is the following. There is intense relief uh, among the, you know, the chattering classes that Biden, that Trump is gone and that Biden is president. The relief is, um, uh, I, I was going to, has is intensified by Trump's relative absence from the scene, in part because he doesn't have his Twitter feed anymore. Although he can tweet, you know, if he puts out statements all day, that they'll still be on Twitter and everybody will read them. So he himself seems to have made some kind of a shift somewhere, but he's not there. He's not driving everybody crazy and overstimulating everybody. And Biden is there. And most presidents or most administrations would kind of want, particularly in the, the media, would want their star to be the star. Uh, that was certainly the Obama administration, which, you know, no one had a, a public profile aside from the president. I mean, you know, maybe Hillary a little bit, but, you know, uh, you know, it was all Obama all the time and it, just the way it was all Trump all the time. Uh, except for the sort of mini villains created by the media and by uh, Trump himself to some extent to sort of like stimulate more rage, you know, Stephen Miller and Jason Miller and Daisy Miller. And as I keep saying, um, so they're playing this perfectly is what I'm saying. They, they, they were present, the Biden people were presented with a set of circumstances that you can go any which way you want to with it. And uh, they they decided in the middle of 2019 that um, that a Biden that was slightly inaccessible, away from the press, not totally, you know, out there at all times, uh, pushing the envelope and all that. Particularly when the when the virus when the pandemic started, and he they could literally pick and choose when he talked, where, and under what circumstances, and totally control those circumstances. Um, I think as a as a as a political matter they have reintroduced the idea that scarcity is a value that's the scarcity of a politician's presence this is something that we don't think about in popular culture at all anymore you know there were there were times in the 1970s and 1980s when the biggest stars like robert redford and people like that would not be seen for a year in public that there were there was no people or people magazine had just started there were no you know gossip columns everywhere and entertainment tonight and all of this they would go to his mountain in, in utah and sit there and then he would come down from the mountain do some movie or something like that and it was like oh my god there's robert redford i i love him i, I never get to see him and now everybody is exposed constantly 24 hours a day on in, there's nothing surprising there's nothing mysterious there's nothing hidden there's very little that is secret and you know as i think i said before on the you know ronald reagan spoke maybe three times a week and that was it he spoke three times a week he was out three times a week for much of his presidency and that was what was normal because you don't want to use your biggest asset and drain it of all of its majesty and power and bring it down to the level 
of a Twitter star. And Trump did that for good and ill. And Biden there somehow reasserting, in part because of necessity, but also because they they, they cannily saw the results. They are reasserting the idea that it is best when the president is not seen very much because it enhances his authority. Well, but and then some. I mean, they're really going far. I, I mean, he hasn't held a press conference, right? And it's 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 some kind of uh, record, I think. Um, uh, and since I don't know, like Truman or something, I remember. I prefer, you know, no one has gone this long in office without holding a press conference. Oh, didn't you see all the kind of? I can't remember who said it. Maybe Mark, Ger- maybe Mike Gerson, or or Max Boot, or something said. Or David Frum. Actually, David Frum said, I'm glad he's not having press conferences. You know why? Because then people focus on the officials who are actually deploying the policies who will talk about policy as opposed to a press conference at the White House where it's reporters who get rewarded for getting into some kind of a soundbite tussle with the president. So now it's good. (laughs) Yeah, except that it also allows the Biden administration to do as it did last week when it was questioned about border policy to punt and say, "Eh, I don't know, ask the DHS guy or ask this person, like to to not actually take responsibility for what they themselves as an administration is doing. So it's great for them. Um, I will say that the funny, one of the funny moments in the last couple news cycles is, you know, uh, Biden has been downplaying uh, some of the ways that the Obama administration rolled out the last stimulus, sort of saying he didn't promote it enough. It just didn't. It just wasn't the best way. And what we're going to do is so much better. And now you have a couple of sniping former Obama folks like David Acker on others going, well, if it was so terrible, why did you run on it? Like there's a there's a funny little like sniping going on in Obama world because you know, how dare Joe Biden actually try to try to stomp all over our legacy kind of stuff, which is which is sort of charming. And it's in the pre-Trump era way that those things were for inside the beltway types. <laughs> um, I mean, that whole line is one of the most fragrantly ludicrous. Uh, this <laughs> notion this notion that somehow what Obama got wrong was he didn't sell the stimulus. Right. Enough. It was the rollout that was the problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what happened with the stimulus was that it didn't work. That's what happened. The economy was the next year and the stimulus didn't work. And if the economy had grown at twice the rate that it did then uh, he would have been dancing around. He call, tried to call it recovery summer, and then recovery summer didn't happen. That's the story of the stimulus. Same story as this stimulus. Whatever credit he might get now is evanescent. The whole question of whether or not it, whether or not the idea will stick, that the stimulus was good for the country and helped the country recover and improve and made things better instead of worse. And, I, I you know, think the Obama administration was actually a promotion-free administration, John. At no point yes. was there any no, promotion. No, he was only and if there had policy. been promotion, it wouldn't have been so bad, but there was no He left promotion. that to the Nobel Prize Committee, Noah. He doesn't yeah. need to do it himself. Yeah, yeah, he, did, yeah he, he, didn't go on, he didn't go on The Daily Show or anything. You know. Or admit that shovel-ready jobs weren't as shovel-ready as he thought and got laugh lines around it. Like It was right. literally a punchline the extent to which the stimulus had not met expectations. I think, by the way, a punchline that the president himself deployed and got laughs on. I think Obama would say this about uh, all sorts of bad policies at the time. He would say, you know, I think I failed in communicating to people just exactly why I was right about this. You know, I think if I could have sort of, you know, dumbed my genius down a little more and made it more you know, accessible of, to the, to the average American, I could have done a better job communicating, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. the fruits of well, my that, own greatness. That's that that's shot through his memoir. Oh, really? Is that um, yeah? Is that um, you know he had 
his ambivalence about power meant that he couldn't be a salesman in the way that other people might have been salesmen and that that was a real you know that was a real weakness it's like one of those Chekhov characters who says things like you know my problem is I'm too kind that's my you know my my, my real issue is that I'm I'm too self-effacing. I'm, I'm, I, I won't take credit for myself enough, and that's a real that's a real issue. And you know what else is a real issue? Is how big tech, social media, are trying to curb our rights and freedoms by attempting to deplatform speech they don't agree with. So what can you do? Well, you could deactivate your social media accounts, but that would be giving the left just what they wanted in the first place. So instead of letting big tech sites try to control your speech, revoke their right to your data, and use the same service I use to protect my online data, ExpressVPN. When you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network, and the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer, and you're protected. So it's finally time to say no to censorship Take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. Um, so I want to get that Fauci thing in there just, so okay, just to Fauci. promote my blog post, which is should be live by the time you get around to hearing this Um this podcast listeners. So he was on MSNBC's Morning Joe this morning and was asked very plainly, you know, to, what are the what are the lessons that you've learned over the course of the last 13 months as the face of the COVID response? And his quote was, you've just got to be completely honest and tell to yourself and to your uh, and honest and true to yourself and to your principles even though you're going to have to tell some people things that might be inconvenient truths. He added that those inconvenient truths might put you at odds with people. And yet, nevertheless, you have to be a consistent scientist and a public health figure. And um, there's a lot of things that you could say about uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci's messaging. But the extent to which he was consistent as a scientist is in dispute. The notion that he was consistent as a public health figure is probably more accurate. But that's not necessarily a compliment. Um when it comes to masking, when it comes to the threshold by which we achieve herd immunity, when it comes to the data around the efficacy of a first dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines versus the double dose, uh, Anthony Fauci has admitted very publicly that what he was involved in was a messaging campaign designed to nudge the public toward his preferred policy outcomes, not disseminating the truth as he understood it. And he's said as much. And for him to go out there and sort of wallow in self-pity in this sort of reflects um, a problem that I think he's now aware of and that we saw reflected in a Washington Post write-up of a Frank Luntz um, focus group, which found that among these mostly Republican voters, all of whom were vaccine skeptics, they all regarded Dr. Anthony Fauci with rank hostility, um, were very hostile towards him, and particularly what they regarded as his dishonesty and flippancy in some cases. In pursuit of Anthony Fauci's prime objective now, in fact, the country's prime objective now, which is to get as many shots and as many arms as possible and to overcome this kind of agnosticism that prevails on the right uh, over this vaccine, um, Anthony Fauci may have become an obstacle to his own goal. And if that is the case, then spending as much time in front of the cameras as he does seems uh, counterproductive. 
I was I was wondering if you'd say after his after describing his morning Joe appearance and talking about how important it was to him for him to be a truth teller that then he was struck by a bolt of lightning because I've actually found look his false humility was kind of annoying during the height of the pandemic crisis when he you know was like oh I couldn't possibly accept your prayer candle that was created for me or this cult of personality or pose in in style magazine poolside as your hero I couldn't possibly okay so whatever he gets a pass because he became this anti-Trump pro public health figure. But at this point, he's his he's enjoying the process of being the guy who reads the tea leaves that affect everybody else. And I'll say this in the context of my favorite hobby horse, which is school reopenings. If you follow the people who are kind of waiting with with hopes and, and fears about whether their schools can reopen, him just casually mentioning three for three feet versus six feet as guidance becomes this thing that people obsess about for days because it affects their lives. And the, you're right to use the word flippancy because that's really his attitude at this point becomes does become offensive to people and not just vaccine skeptics. He's enjoying that power and he's not treating it with the seriousness he should be. Right. According to Politico, one of the reasons why he didn't want to endorse overruling uh, members of the president's COVID uh, response um, you know, circle uh, was that, the, A, the data wasn't sufficient to justify that, which is completely valid. But B, because it would be a public relations and messaging nightmare to change track. But that's happened all the time, as it should. Our public health guidance regarding relating to this virus has changed very frequently, sometimes 180 degrees in response to the data as we've seen it. In fact, Anthony Fauci himself has revised his, as you just said, that is just one example of the many ways in which he's revised his recommendations. So he doesn't have a, a uniform standard that he applies here. And he really does seem to embrace the idea that his role is to manipulate public opinion and guide the public towards outcomes that are for their best good, even if that means lying to them. And well, that does describe a public health official. It doesn't necessarily describe a scientist. Look, I think... Uh, as a study in our contemporary culture, the, uh, you know, uh, the lionization of Anthony Fauci is an interesting test case. It is an outgrowth of celebrity culture that um, uh, people uh, fall in love with uh, a doctor at a moment of crisis and that, uh, and, and, and we now have personalities at the center of everything. So, it's Trump versus Fauci. Fauci's there, but he's behind the scenes. He's trying to get the right message across with this inconstant leader and all that. Or it's Cuomo versus Trump. Or it's you know Newsom versus Trump. Or it's DeSantis versus Cuomo or something like that. And um, you know, in in a in a mobilization in a sort of you know in a, a national mobilization moment when all hands are supposed to be on deck and everything like that. The whole point is this is all supposed to be larger than any one person or people and focusing on personalities is entirely beside the point, but this is the only way that we organize our public life anymore is around people rather than around causes or around ideas or around, you know, uh, institutions. It's all people and no human being could have withstood the, the ego boost, uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the creation of a myth about himself, the way uh, the Anthony Fauci can't, could not handle it properly. Nobody could. No one. We need no a Dr. One, Quinn medicine woman, actually. She could. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think there's more to it. I, I remember early in the, in the pandemic, 
um, sending a text either to all of you or just to you, John, when I, when I saw the sort of uh, Cuomo stardom taking off and I, and I had this thought and I, it, I went something like the, the greater the crisis, the more superficial the quality uh, Americans seem to want in their leader. Um, and, and that is what lifted Cuomo up. That is what lifted Fauci up. It was, people didn't want to think about what actually had to be done and about the enormous task before the country. They wanted someone to make sounds that, that soothed them in one way or another. Well, this again gets to the question that is not answerable because you can't go back and rerun the past or do a counter contrapositive or all that. But, you know, the two main questions, which is if Trump had, had, had handled the virus with uh, consistency and constancy instead of bouncing all over the map every day, uh, would things have been different? And had he been a, um, a tough lockdown person, uh, would the uh, yin-yang oppositional dynamic of American politics have meant that Cuomo and, you know, the Democrats would have become the open things up party? And we got to open things up because Trump is using this to impose his fascistic regime on all of us, restricting our civil liberties, restricting our rights, restricting our freedoms to get us used to what he was going to do in November, which was cancel the election. And if you think that I am going too far in saying this, in 2003, I was on a panel at the American Bar Association with uh, uh, Floyd Abrams and Kevin Buckley, who was then of the nation, and a couple of other people And uh, in the course of this, Kevin Buckley said very seriously that he believed the line that was going around in his circles was that George W. Bush was going to cancel the 2004 election. Uh, And that, you know, this was the most pressing matter facing our country and that we really needed to look at this. And I looked across the panel at him and I said, you know, I actually would prefer to live on the planet earth instead of the planet Blargon where you and your friends live. Um, so that's what Trump might've faced or not, or, or he would have been constant and calm and determined and said, we need to get this, we need to deal with this virus. And this is what the science says, and this is what's happening. And there was that moment when he said uh, at the press conference in April of 2020 or whatever, he said, we're going to go through a lot of pain. Do you remember this? We're going to go through a lot of pain. That was the two weeks after the uh, IMRE projection, which, by the way, was, you know, it was that 100 to 20, 120 to 200,000 people were going to die. Um, and, you know, he now claims to have saved 2 million lives or whatever. But, uh, but I just, I don't know the answer to this. Had he been the kind of person that Fauci wanted him to be, would American history uh, be different? In part, it could be different because maybe he wouldn't have won the election, but he also might not have been, a, you know, I mean, Georgia might have gone differently. You know, I mean, again, we're, we're in this position where uh, arguably the most dangerous uh, piece of domestic legislation in the last 25 years was passed, largely as a result of Donald Trump being a whiny crybaby loser uh, and imposing his fantastical loser slime on the brains of people in Georgia who then didn't turn out to vote in the 
election. And yes, I'm insulting him. And if you don't like it, gee, I'm really sorry. But I'm staring down the barrel of uh, the return of welfare, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars to cities that have uh, have been uh, have uh, misapplied and misspent their own monies. Uh, God only knows what else, 10,000 other things. And that's Trump's fault. And every time that you look at this and say, this bill is a disaster, if you are an honest person, you need to understand that the former president of the United States depressing turnout in Georgia is the reason that that bill is now law. So with that crushing morosity, with that t-shirt, sweatshirt, you can get it at merch.commentarymagazine.com. You could wear it tomorrow when you are listening to the podcast. Not that we can get it to you by tomorrow, but those of you, those of you who have purchased the stuff, please wear it in good health. And we will talk to you tomorrow for Noah, Christine, and Abe. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.